and welcome to Game Changers with me, Vicki Abelson. And my guest today is Denny Tedesco, who I have been, uh, I've been chasing you for a while, Denny, huh? Well, <laughs> we've tried our best during COVID. You know, yeah, and, and you've, been, uh, you've been a busy guy. I, I wanted to talk to you about COVID because you've gotten a lot of work done in the middle of this. How, what were you, at, you were in the middle of making this documentary on the immediate family when this started, right? Yeah. It was funny because I was thinking about this yesterday. We, you and I met, we met at uh, the NAMM show. Yes, we did. With that this is where it gets hard because even though we know where COVID stands days or weeks or years. Right. Remember, so it was the end of 2019. No, right. no, beginning, the beginning of 2020. Correct. It was the NAMM show. Right. And at that point, I had been shooting uh, the Media Family documentary since August. And right. we were just at the NAMM show and we were just about to go to Sundance. And there was this talk about a virus kind of uh, thing. Right. Uh, China, some Wuhan or something. Right. <laughs> and, uh, and, and it's so funny because for anybody that's ever been to the NAMM show, um, one of my favorite quotes is from the drummer Hal Blaine, who hated going it. He really? Goes, it, it's a human petri dish. <laughs> really? Because and, of germs he hated it? Yeah, yeah. He goes, I always get sick everywhere. Every time I get home, I get sick. So, oh, okay. God. But um, it's so funny. And sure enough, it got worse. Oh man, did it get worse? And you know what's interesting, Denny? That was like at the end. Was it? It's. It's it was mid January, I think, the Nam show. Yeah, probably even. Yeah. And so people were already getting it, and. Um, yeah. I. But it was I, kind of. Yeah. Go ahead. It was kind of. No, wild. I was just. I didn't think we. I think we were also in belief that it wasn't going to get to us here in this country at that point. I think it that's what like we thought. This day. It was like there was some far out disease that we're not going to get. But it didn't take long because I went to a oh. Wild Honey concert uh, a two weeks later, I think it was, about no, maybe a few weeks. Anyway, I hugged Jackson Brown and a week later he divulged that he had COVID. And um, so it was happening. You know, we just yeah. weren't really That's that true. on top of it. So how did, how did the pandemic, it must have impacted making this documentary, I imagine. It impacted, I think, everybody. I mean, obviously it impacted everybody, but what was interesting about my doc, the doc we were working on, Right. Um, at that point, in a lot of ways, we were lucky because we had filmed all the artists at that point. I started with Carol King, I interviewed uh, Jackson, and I interviewed uh, James Taylor, Phil Collins, Linda Ronstead, Oh and, my God. and Lou Adler and all these folks at that point. Right. So in a lot of ways, we were so lucky because it's not easy doing interviews on Zoom. It's, you know, yes, if you're doing an interview, it's great, but for, you can't blow this up to go on a screen, you know, and- So yeah, what did, you, what did you do about that? Oh, we didn't, we avoided it. Avoided like, like every which way to not want to Zoom, you know, interviews. We've done a few. Uh, like Neil Young. Well, you do what Neil Young is going to want to do. I'll I'll take anything from Neil. Even if, <laughs> right. you know, that's the thing is sometimes it's not about the picture. It's really about the message. Right. And, you know, so yeah, you'll, you could survive with a Zoom. Um, but what happened was after a few months. But you had already was, done all those big interviews before, prior yes. to the, okay. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That was all done before. 
So thank God, because I don't think, you know, it would have been very difficult to see Linda Ronstead in the situation because, you know, of her illness. Right. Uh, you know, she's not going to let us up there. I wouldn't. Right. And, um, right. you know, all of our friends who are all of, you know, above 65 and above, you know, we didn't want to, yep, and we didn't want to go there. So what we did is we made sure we were really safe and I had to go get the guys you know, I had to go get Lee and Leland and uh, Russ and Danny and Wadi and Steve. And we just mm -hmm. did it slowly, just a sound man and my DP. And we just went, you know, made sure we tested and made sure we, uh, you know, were clean. Um, but that was the way to do it. And slowly. So that was what you had left was we're interviewing the guys pretty much, themselves. Pretty much. And then there were times that we got, we, you know, um, we had questions and we sent them to like Keith Richards and he sent a fabulous uh, video back from his iPhone. Um, wow. And I got to say, it's so funny because you look at that interview you go, you know, that was good. Obviously he's done it a few times. Right. You know, lit. And I realize it's lit. It's backlit. And he's kind of perfectly, you know, wow. so it's you know, but, you know, but we did Steve. Um, uh, oh, we've done so many did Stevie Nicks um tom waits not tom waits i'm so sorry lyle lovett i don't know why i said tom waits but there's a few we did by zoom but what we did is you know we're, we're, we're working with it it's not easy but we're working with it but you know what denny i think there's a new acceptance from yes. from the whole world no we've all been through this together we've all yeah. survived this so well we haven't all survived but those of us right. who have survived we, there's a new normal. There's a new acceptance of what things yeah. look like. And yeah, I mean, I, I didn't even try to do interviews on Zoom for the first month. I thought, no, that's going to be terrible. But yeah. there was no choice. It was either do that or do nothing. No, no. And, and you know, it's funny because in a weird way, we're so fortunate that um, COVID hit at the right time for many of us who have kids, um, you know, we're trying to go to school. The kids were going to school. If this How old are your happened, kids, Danny? One's 22, one's 16. But if it had been 10 years before, mm -hmm. we didn't have the infrastructure for this. There's no way. That's right. That's right. So now, you know, what would our society have done? You know, I, you know, in my film business, you know, my wife's a commercial producer. It's turned itself around very well um, because all we do every day is think of how to get out of we're always problem solving on set. Do you know, nothing's ever the same. So you know you have 50 people where you know, all right, these people have to go and no one's can be next to the, you know, so it's part of the what we do for a living. It's not just telling the story, it's organizing. So in a lot of ways we were able to do that. So we're gonna talk about how you got into that. So um, Niagara Falls, is that right? You, Niagara Falls is where my parents are from. Your parents are from? Uh, Mom and dad were high school sweethearts. 1953, oh. they moved out. And my father, Tommy, was a guitar player. And Tommy Tedesco was a guitar player. Was he uh, ever? But at that time, what was his level of? The, of professionalism? Yeah. Uh, I think he had, it's funny you said that. I asked my, oh, somebody else's computer. <laughs> Why is that mine? Um, I asked my mom a few years ago before she passed. I said, Mom, when that there was an incident, basically, um, there was a dance at Diary University and they were invited to the dance. Mm -hmm. 
And my father did not want to go because he, he got a gig with his jazz trio in Pennsylvania. And he worked in a chemical plant. That's where he worked, you know? Wow. So he said, you know, he wanted to go to the gig and she said, no, no. She goes, I spent $35 on this dress. We have to go, you know? And so it was like, uh, you know, as you know, so many musicians, you know, he did not want to go. Right. But he went. And then at the end of the dance, someone said, hey, the guitar player is leaving. And we told him we have a friend that plays guitar. So my father tried out and he was good enough to get on the gig. And they took him the next day, went around the country. And, um, wow. and that was it. And, and, you know, and they got to L.A., went to the Hoagie Carmichael show at the Palladium and then got fired. He got fired for, because for he got let go for the guitar. He got let go and the singer because they found someone that could do both. Oh, and so cheaper. Like, cheaper, right? Exactly. Let's pull back. <laughs> so he was so ashamed. So when he got to Dallas, it was the last day. He drove straight from Dallas all the way to Niagara Falls, didn't stop, and said to my mom, there's work out in Los Angeles, studio work which he didn't even know that was real. That was not did even- you, Did your father, your father obviously read music. How was he trained to do that? Where did he I train? Basically, well, he basically trained himself at that point. Mm -hmm. He was okay, probably okay of a reader, but he enough to get by in the band. Right. But when he was so ashamed of being fired in a small, being in a small town. You know, wow. He left, he didn't want to be there. So I said to my mom, I said, first of all, I said, did dad work a lot, you know, in music at the time? She goes, no. She goes, there was no gigs in Niagara Falls, New York, you know, maybe a <laughs> party or a wedding, but right. there wasn't, you know, so it was never part of his idea of making a living growing, you know, he didn't, wasn't thinking of going to New York or LA. That was not part of it. It was by luck. So when he got to LA, I said to her, I said, how long was it before you moved? I said, a year, year and a half. She goes, no, it was three weeks. He what? was that embarrassed. She goes, three weeks. We packed up. We still owed money on our, our furniture from our wedding, which we sold, she said, which was illegal. You know, and she, you know, they paid that off and they moved and they, you know, my older brother and her and my dad. Wow. But they got to LA and then started trying to figure out how to get a gig. And, and, and so how did that start for him? So basically, like so many other musicians, you meet other musicians and you go to the clubs, you hang out, you jam, you get a, you know, start getting a name. He was sub for other people. He was teaching in a music store. There wasn't much guitar to be taught. Um, and he had a friend at a music store. So his friend told him accordion, teach accordion. He goes, I don't play accordion. He says, I'll, I'll give you a lesson. You get, you can figure it out from there. So he gives wow. him the lesson and he makes, as long as he didn't play the accordion, you know, he could tell the kids, you know, this, 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 you know, and he goes, and then there was one, he said there was- Did, he, one play, did he play piano? Did he take no. piano lessons? No. No, no but wow. he could, he probably knew the notes, you know, obviously. Right. But it was just a gig. He could, just, as long as he stayed one step ahead of the kid, he was okay. And he said, <laughs> until there was this one little Chinese kid, he said, the mother comes in and says, I want you to play for her. And he goes, no. He says, I do not play for my students. They have to understand. They have to learn from this. Da, da. He bullshitted his way through that one because he couldn't play. He said she was killer. She was a killer, you know, accordion player. Wow. So, wow. But, you know, and then they just, and then, you know, you get, what happened is then he started learning how to read and really learning how to read. And he was so determined to get out of working at Lockheed 
you know, he had a job moving boxes and stuff that he basically would, if he wasn't hanging out in the club trying to play, he'd come home and he'd sit there and he'd just play and read music. And he would take the music and flip it upside down so that he could actually not memorize it. So if you're playing a standard, you know, it's the same music. You're, gonna, you're not going to read it. You're going to be playing it. Right. So he would just flip the music and just make sure he read it through backwards. Wow. So he was able to do that. He was really into math. You know, I always think in a gambler that you asked me earlier before we talked about addictions, that was his addiction was wow. strictly uh, coffee, cigarettes, gambling, and uh, food. How, how and did the, the oh, I relate to the food. food. How did the gambling, was it ponies? Was it uh, poker? What is Anything. this thing? It could be a raindrop if it's going to hit that i mean the guys told me stories making the wrecking crew film that was just so awful i mean some of it really funny some of it really sad but truthful i mean they would just gamble they didn't, the cards were their thing and right. then football cards right. and football but um did he ever get in trouble with any of that talked to my mom yeah a lot of times mm -hmm. with her <laughs> there was, a lot of, there was that was if there was you know it's funny because if there was any uh if there was anything in the family that was because he wasn't a drinker he didn't like drinking didn't like drugs at all and, the and reason you were telling me before why why did he like that well he, he didn't like he was a control freak mm -hmm. and i think that's why he was actually one of the great session players because he had control of his capabilities his control of his situation he didn't like being out of control. So like drinking or smoking, I remember one of the guys, I remember him telling the story of, it might've been Emil Richards, one of the great vibest, you know, percussion players mm -hmm. might've given him something during lunch. Like they gave him a toke. I'll right. give you that, you know, smoking, let me have a hit. Mm -hmm. And then he sat down and it was a TV date. And it was a some really simple thing, you know, on like one of the TV shows, right? like whatever it was in the seventies. And he said, Oh my God, he started screwing up and he screamed across the room, you son of a bitches, this is why. <laughs> he knew he couldn't play it. You know, he had to get through it, but it was like, that's how it was hard. Wow. Do you think, so, yeah. do you think Danny, uh, was his, were his parents musical? I mean, no. he, because he wasn't no. just like a great session player, he was arguably like the greatest session player so yeah. that's do you think it was in his genes do you think it's do you think you it know, was a you know it's funny because he used to say i'm a good guitar player he says i'm not a great guitar player he says there's great guitar players he goes he would talk about you know mi musicians institute he goes some of the players just in the school are amazing guitar players or the teachers they're the mm. great guitar players he didn't find him. He felt he was a great session player, studio player, you know, because he knew what it was about. He had, again, he was an improviser. You know, when it came to someone from a piece of music, he could read it, like I said, upside down. And he was, did it so well that he had mastered that his craft. And that's what he was called for, you know. And, and he would say to the students, he said, listen, I've never, you know, you're given a piece of music, you know, John Williams gives it to you, Goldsmith or Conti or Mancini, they give you these pieces of music. It doesn't mean you're going to read it note by note. You still have to bring yourself into it as a player. And he said, and by the way, he says, 
I've never met a, a, a better guitar. I've never met a composer that was a better guitar player than me, meaning none of those guys write for guitar in a sense. Right. So they don't know you can't do this like this, but he can't tell them that he has to still do it. So he, he knows how to get around his fretboard and the music and still make music. Well, and how did he, how did he, he was playing live gigs. How did he get into that world Studios? of, okay, yeah. So basically it's, again, it's recommendations. You know? so he would, yeah, yeah. It was like one of them times, probably in the, probably late 50s, mid, because he's here in 53. I was looking at his book at 58. He's starting to work now. So not bad for five years. Fantastic. So in that time period, what's going on is there's like uh, Lorendo Almeida was one of the great guitar players at the time and what, mm-hmm. from Argentina is classical guy, you know, flamingo and stuff like that. Right. And that was my dad's love. So they would call my father, they would call all the guys in town. They would call Herb Ellis. Do you play classical guitar? No. Howard Roberts? No. Barney Kessel? No. And then they get to my father. He said, yeah. I play classical guitar and he all he did was to take his classical guitar but he had a pick he wasn't like a traditional and he would be doing a marble commercial or a western and it's him and lorenda almeida next you know going you know (laughs) stuff like that so it didn't need to be so you know wasn't like oh classical and that was his trick is he would use a pick he knew how to play you know that with a pick and, Sounds like uh, he so was then, also willing to tr- to say he could do anything. I, I'm assuming absolutely. that he just said, "Yeah, I can do. I can yeah. do that." He said, "Yeah, absolutely." And t- you know, you do that at the beginning, and you know, you still you try to get there, and he, you know, and you know, and then he would just get you know to that point where, and all the instruments. What he did was for the guitar players out there. Mm-hmm. I'm not a guitar player. Let's uh, put that out there now. I don't play an instrument. We're gonna we're gonna talk about you not playing an instrument in a minute. Yeah. But, I'll, I'll have to pay you for psychology or for my therapy. <laughs> um, so no, he, but he would take every guitar, bazooki, mandolin, uh, bella like any guitar that anything with strings, right. he would tune it like a guitar. So he never went to the mandolin tuning or the bazooki tuning because he needed to know where he was in the music. So he knew how to transpose it and get wow. it to where it needed to be. But he goes, it's not the most authentic, you know, but it sounds right, you know. And there was a great story I read where um, I want to say it was um, Felix Lacken was one of the great uh, classical composers. His sister worked in town with a violinist and they were doing, um, uh, what do you call it? Um, Oh God, Love Boat. So in the, if you're doing a, TV show or a movie in the union, you get paid your instrument. Let's say you bring a guitar, you get 100%. Right. You go from electric to acoustic, it's a 50%. Anything after that, I think you go down to 25% for every instrument. So if you did a mandolin and then you get a bella laica and then you do a bazooki, you just keep adding, adding to this. Percents. You know, adding to it. So one of the, you know, now you got to realize the violinist they only have one instrument right so when you have a inst- two instruments or three or whatever they call that doubling so you're doubling on your instruments so you're going to make a lot more money so violinists they don't like that you know, they, <laughs> they, you know they're stuck with their violin right. and so she i think it was her that said someone said 
Tommy, sarcastically, do you even know what those instruments are called? Because he had a case of these instruments, right. instruments from all over the world. And he would just pick them up. He goes, yeah, I got, he goes, 100%, 50%, 25%. <laughs> I mean, he was a character, but but he could, ma he mastered what he could, did. He certainly did. So, yeah. and do you know at what point like all, like how did, how did, I've seen the documentary, brilliant, heartfelt, genius, loved it, saw it a number of times, gonna go Thank back you. and watch it again. It's such a love letter to your father. It is such a beautiful, beautiful film and such an important film because they were so important to music. And so many people didn't know the story. They thought they're they really listening to Jan and Dean. They don't know what's going on there. Yeah. How did, how did the Wrecking Crew, the, the elevator pitch come to be? Basically, all right, so in the 50s, LA, don't forget, LA is a movie town. So their infrastructure for media is movies, TVs coming in. Right. There's some, there's recordings being done here, but records, you know, the big hits and pop stuff is still coming out of New York, uh, Nashville, Detroit, London, you know, in terms of the pop stuff. Right. And you can see that by the charts. If you look at the charts in the late 50s and the early 60s, you say, oh, that was done in New York. That's done in Detroit. And, and all of a sudden you start seeing L.A. coming in. Oh, that's the Beach Boys. Oh, there's uh, Wayne Newton. And there, you know, and you start seeing these things popping in. Mm -hmm. And what it did was as soon as the Beach Boys inspector start mm -hmm. kicking in and they're, and they're basically Phil and, and Brian, they're using the same guys. And they're basically kicking in. You know, they become the guys, the go-to guys. You know, once you start having a reputation, everybody wants you. Right. You know, and that's what how it went down. And in those days, you know, you did. They were called three-hour sessions. And there's, and we'll talk about that. Why it's different from the immediate family era. Okay. Those days, you went from nine to one or nine to twelve, maybe a one to four or a five to eight. You could go around the clock doing three-hour sessions that's what the union booked it for so in those three hours you could all you were allowed to do was three or four songs they didn't want you to jam a whole album out in three hours you know it's, it was like you know it was factory work and so you might be doing jan and dean here and then you're doing sunny and share yeah. here or something oh, like totally i mean it's funny because i'll show you what i don't have in front of me but you know hold that thought one okay, second I'll, yeah Just absolutely show and tell we love show and tell Benny <laughs> we love show and tell and I have I have weird hair and weird lipstick and well I'm just going to focus on how weird I look now that I'm not looking at you ah come back quick I'm back okay it's like the books basically you know you're seeing his workbooks this is 67 wow so you know so you're getting like you know, like this day he's at Western, then he's at MGM, then he's got hold for David Gates. Wow. It's so funny seeing these things because I can translate. Wow. Um, and, you know, there's like three or four sessions in these days, Earl Palmer, United and stuff like that. So they would, yes, they would go to different sessions, different contractors or different producers. And that's how, you know, and they didn't spend much time. Labels didn't believe at the early days that rock and roll was real, like any music coming through. It's a fad, it's not gonna be around. 
And sure enough, once they started making money and they start putting more money into it, right. you know, and then they realize that, okay, well, all right, we're getting our money back. But they, that's why groups in the early days in the sixties weren't allowed to use their instruments many times, you know, like the association uh, when Bones Howe or a lot of these groups, um, uh, you know, a lot of groups didn't play on the albums. Right. They had the studio guys come in and ghost form because they only had three hours. And they needed the pros to come in, get it done and- Get it done. Then the group learns the stuff, goes on the road and kills it. You know what I mean? But in those early days, you had to get an album out. You had to get it on the record, on the radio. Things were moving so fast. So it wasn't like a big plan of, you know, how we're going to get this out there, you know, and they just did it. And so how did the core of the Wrecking Crew come to, like Carol? Like how did, how did- Basically all these people, they're, inter they're intertwining. They're not like a band. Right. They're still like, dad might go to work with Earl Palmer at 10 o'clock on one day, but Hal Blaine's on the next date or Carol or Ray Pullman. But it's still a group of, I say, within 20 musicians. I was really going to say how many people are in that. There are about 20, 25 musicians. And it's really not a, Hal Blaine made the thing up. He made the name up in a sense. How so? We, um, he used to tell the story um, about how the, when they were doing the rock and roll stuff in the early 60s, right. the older guys, and don't forget, here's the other reason why these guys are capturing all that stuff. The older guys don't want to do this music. Some of it is non-union, so they're not going to risk getting busted or they're not going to risk a real uh, movie date for a $25 gig for a song. Right, right. These guys in the late 50s, they'll take a chance and, you know, hey, Phil Spector's or someone's got something going. Yeah, it's two, it was... Uh, one for 25, two for 30 or whatever it was. And you would do that just to get in, but then it became, okay, you know, it's legit. Now they, they've taken those seats over. So the older guys now want in, they can't get in because ah. now they want to play rock and roll. Then, you, know, <laughs> you know, my father, you know, it's somewhat is a rock and roll. It's pop rock and roll, whatever it was at the time. Right. But right. you know, it wasn't my fa dad's favorite music. No, what was it? What was his favorite music? Jazz, jazz would have been it, or or uh, cla not classical, but so much Spanish. He loved music. I mean, he wasn't that he didn't like rock and roll. Mm -hmm. The stuff he's playing is not that much fun for him. Do you I know see. what I mean? He's playing three chords. When he gets to play, and they give him the classical guitar and say "Go nuts" on that song, you know, it could have been "Gypsies, Tramps, and Thieves" or whatever the or up, up and away with fifth dimension, he's able to go loose and then he's creating, he loves it. But he didn't have what the, what the immediate family has in the early seventies, all the next session players of the singer song, all those guys that come in in New York and LA and all those other groups of session players in the seventies, mm -hmm. they're taking their time and enjoying making the music. I'm not saying my dad didn't enjoy work. He loved work, but I, it wasn't something that you would spend a you know, two weeks on one album. That's crazy talk. Uh, did, did he, I mean, did he ever like go out and play in the clubs or do any well, of that stuff? He, it's funny because he did later. So I'm born in 61 and I never saw my father play guitar at home until 75, 76. No kidding. Because 
he never brought a guitar home to practice. He didn't need to. He was you know, working last, every day. Last thing, he, he did three, four, he could do 12, 14 hours a day. Jesus. Everybody giving him another piece of music all day long. And he said, blah, 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 blah. He, didn't, he didn't listen to the radio. He came wow. home, he watched TV or he listened, you know, ball games or whatever, but music was not it. So when he started doing, started doing seminars and teaching around the country, like doing like for Gibson or Fender or whatever he was represented by. Mm -hmm. And then GIT, which was the Guitar Institute. The students were the ones that really pushed him and said, why don't you play for yourself? And he realized he missed that. Mm -hmm. He didn't, you know, and that's when he did his, uh, started playing live again and came out with some jazz albums in the seventies. But that, wow. he missed that. And the, you know, from that point on, never put that guitar down. Even at home, even after he had a stroke, he still had the guitar in his hand. The left hand was fine. It was the right hand that made it basically mm -hmm. brought him to retirement, but always kept it, you know, even when it's slow, even when it was slow in the later days in the eighties before the stroke, you know, he constantly had it in his hand. It was something I, you know, never saw. Wow. And so the business must have changed for him because as the 50s into the 60s, by the 70s, bands are playing their own music, yeah. right? They're... Right. Well, the, the, it goes back to the fortunate thing. What he had was he could read the shit out of something, you know? So that gave him another career because right. now he's gone from, when he moves here in the early 50s, he's doing... My voice just cracked. I'm 13 again. My voice cracked. <laughs> good. It's, it's good to be young. Forever young. Yes. 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 Thank you. Till next to my doctor. <laughs> um, so he's doing the clubs. Now he's doing records in the 50s and the 60s. And he's doing some TV and stuff in the and some movies in the 60s and 70s. And but now, now it's strictly records are going. He's out of the records. He's going straight into TV and film. And from that point on, he's, you know, hugely in demand, you know, in the, in that world, because right. he could do the read, he could play his acoustic, you know, the classical, he could do all the instruments, right, you know, right, if you want to, you know, and I asked him, what is the difference between him and let's say a specialist, he goes, listen, you got a door behind the studio door, you don't know what's there. He says, you go in there, in the it says, you know, mandolin. Well, if you want B.B. King, he's not going to play the mandolin, but he can play the blues, kill the blues, and right. maybe, you know, but not the mandolin. Same thing with Eric Clapton. You know, you can't do classical. Whatever it is, you right. bring those people into that, but a studio player is able to get close. He goes, I am not the best classical guitar player. I'm not the best rock guitar. I will pretend to get as close as possible. That's all. He says, I play... If the person's smiling, I'm doing their job. I'm doing the right job. They, so he says, if I play for smiles, if they're not smiling, I got to keep playing because I got to figure out what he wants or she wants. <laughs> and it was, a, you know, it was a real work ethic, you know, and that kept him going, you know, and in the so later days, the last days in a career, now you're getting, it's funny because um, it's Leland can remember this when we were talking we talked about the answering service. That was their lifeline. You had like three or four answering services. There was one like called Your Girl or Hotline, and there was Arlen's, and 
you would call up an answering service and they would say, you know, say Tommy's calling in. Said, right. okay, so and so called and said, are you available tonight at six? Yeah. Right. Okay. So uh -huh. he's doing that at breaks during the other studios. Wow. Uh -huh. So he's picking up work all day long or whatever. My mom's taking those calls. He would go from Hollywood, come home. Don't forget folks out there that are under what, 30, 40? There were no cell phones. Right, and right. So he would come from Hollywood. By the time he walked in, the first thing he would say, it was a habit all his life, and he calls. And that meant, did the service call? Or is there any message? You know, it was about work. It wasn't right, you know, about friends. We had, it, we had three rotary phones, like a road, four, four lines in the house for the kids. You know, I had a line, my sister and I, I can't remember, but there were four lines. Mm -hmm. There was never going to be a busy signal in that house. Because if you get a busy signal, that call goes somewhere else. You know, that call goes, you know, that guy's calling so-and-so and said, oh, guess what? Hey, I got a movie next week. What are you doing next week? And I got a movie. It was about work. Right. You know, and if I learned anything from my father, it was about work. And I can't wow. like, you know, it's about, you know, being smart about it. So we, again, the answering service was our key to uh, that. Okay, so let's talk about the Denny Tedesco work ethic. So why hmm. no instrument? You come from this man who is like I, the greatest. I, 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 doing so many interviews, I remember one person said on a radio interview, yeah, you have to, the instrument has to find you. I said, well, that's good because I could blame the instrument. And then it was like something about, um, yeah, it's a God-given talent. I thought, great, now I could blame God. You know, <laughs> did, you have is, no, I, did you have no interest in music? Did you try? Did you yeah, not? I, did. I, love I love listening to music. I love the idea of playing music. But there's this thing you got to do is called practice. And I heard mm. that's one of the key things. And I said, I just can't get, you know, and I didn't realize until... Years later, when my child was diagnosed with ADHD, I realized doing those things, oh, that's me, that's me. And I always wondered if that's why I never picked up, you know, I can't spend more than 10, 15 minutes. That's so interesting because a friend of mine found out he has ADHD when his kid, because his kid got diagnosed. Really? That's how he found out, yes. Was he a yes. musician? Yes. See, it works for some people. You know what I mean? Their focus goes there and they don't leave it. Mine was, I'm all over that place. So I just never did. I, you know, I, the so what was story, your, what was your focus when you were a kid? What was your passion when you were a kid? Fun. Fun. Fun is good. Girls, football, you know, I just love having, you know, um, I grew up in LA, you know, I'm, like I said, seventies were my decade. So I had fun. Um, you a good student, decent student. How was that? Okay, until okay. It's funny because now I have a sixteen-year-old in eleventh grade, and that was about the time I kicked in mm -hmm. because I started understanding what I needed to do. I wanted to go Loyola Marymount, and I needed to bring up the grades. That's what. What, they told what me. did you want to study at Loyola? Why? Why film. Loyola? Film. And how yeah. did that? How did that passion happen? I don't for you? know. I Ooh. don't. It's. I really. It's funny because I did a commercial when I was. I, I was acting in, you know, high school and the plays and stuff. And someone said, I went in for an audition for a Pizza Hut commercial, which I was typecast. And mm -hmm. uh, I felt, you know, ashamed. No, but I, I 
played Pizza Hut. I did more mushrooms and more pepperoni were my lines. (laughs) (laughs) Made money and went, oh, I could do this. Not knowing there was more to it. And um, no, so then I went to Loyola and I wanted to write. But then guess what? If you're going to be a writer, you have to write all the time. Ah. You you know, you have to play an instrument. You got to play all the time. So now I, on my resume at this point out of college, I have a lot of things feeling like not finished. So I'm at the time I come out of college, I've been doing art department, then I'm going to lighting and grip and blah, blah, blah. do IMAX films for a while. Yes. And you did you did the you did the Oscars with Billy Crystal, which is kind of right. thrilling. That was, that was one of my first producing jobs. But what it was, was all these unfinished things. I thought, I, and then I got involved with the wrecking crew thing, the doc. And, you know, dad was passing away in 95. Or okay, no, wait, 96. wait, 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 you're going, yeah. you're going too fast. Sorry, all over all the place stuff. Yeah. No, 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 that all over the place is good. ADH, I'm, I'm right with you. Uh, yeah. Just stop for a second about that Billy Crystal thing. So Robert yeah. Wall is a good friend of mine. Robert wrote, mm. he wrote that monologue for Billy. By you write it? Yeah. Wow. Um, but okay, so you you did this. You you've had successes as so a career. That, had- right, exactly. I was basically I went from college. I had done a film during college called Eating Maul, which was a fabulous a, film. Yeah, it was for anybody that doesn't know it. It's a very dark comedy mm-hmm. about these two swingers in Hollywood that start killing swingers. They weren't even swingers. They're two straight people that start killing swingers so that they could have a restaurant. And they, and in the end, they eat Raul. Very dark. <laughs> Sounds dark. awful. No, no, but it was great. Yeah. I didn't know what it was. You know, I was on a film and this art director um, said, would you be interested in this film mm-hmm. as a decorator? And I, I didn't know what a decorator did, but I said, okay. And I went for an interview and lied and got, got the job and, it was a, the perfect job to lie on because it was family. You know, it was only a three-person art department and everybody did anything. It sounds like you I'm have living. that Tedesco ability to, yes, I can do that and just... Yes, yeah, but then I've gotten better at not saying, yes, I can do that. <laughs> <laughs> I've learned my lesson, yeah. Um, um, did, you, what, did, it, did it ever backfire on you? Not really. I just don't, yeah. you know, sometimes, no. Nah. No, not really. Yeah. Except maybe they haven't called. I don't know. Maybe it did. <laughs> no, I don't think so. Okay. So how, so how did the wrecking crew fit? So how did you go from working I, on things to right, being a filmmaker? To, so then what I did was I started this series, actually working on a series called Pulp Comics, which was a comedy central series. Mm-hmm. And I was producing with all these comedians and they, we would do the films about the standup and it was great. So short films. And that's where I get to meet a lot of comics and stuff. And that's how I got into the uh, Billy Crystal thing. And then um, from that point, um, uh, 2001 come around, we have 9-11 and all that. And then at some point, no, dad's already passed. That's right, dad passed by then. Dad passed and he was diagnosed with cancer in 96. And I wanted to immediately, I always wanted to tell the story about my father and his friends Suppose you're the wrecking crew. Um, I, I assume they didn't, call them, they didn't call themselves no. that, did they? No, so I never yeah. finished that story. Okay. Oh my God. That's all right. The wrecking, yeah, the wrecking crew 
basically when Hal used to say, these guys are going to wreck the business. Or not Hal didn't say that. The older guys said that about Hal, Carol, Dad, all the oh. other guys. And they were going to wreck the business playing this rock and roll stuff. <laughs> what they meant was the business is going to shit because this music shit and they're doing it for nothing and da, 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 da. Well, so the old guys were poo-pooing on the younger guys. Right. So Hal told that story when he was writing his book. And someone said, that's a great title for a book. Let's call it The Wrecking Crew. But that's how that came about. Uh-huh. So, so dad is got cancer, lung cancer. And it was, you know, they said a year. It was terminal. So I wanted to tell that story. I thought, if I don't do it, it's never going to happen. Mm-hmm. So I thought, I better jump into it. And I quickly jumped into that round table with uh, Carol Kay, the bass player, uh, Plaz Johnson, and dad and Hal interviewed uh, Don Randy and interviewed uh, Cher after Dad passed. I had a nice 14 minute piece, but no one would help me. Um, They said, it's never gonna make its money. You'll never get people to give you money because you know, it's gonna make this much and it's gonna cost this much. So I just had to keep going. And after 12 years, my wife was, Susie was like, we just spent so much money on the most expensive home movie ever. Okay, so wait, so let's talk about that. How did you, you were doing your own financing, obviously, at that point. I've had filmmakers on that made movies with iPhones and credit cards. Right. At the time, we were shooting 16 millimeter film. So we're shooting film at the time. Right. Um, And And how are you getting the money? What do you, how you, how are you coming up with the dough? Basically working refinancing, begging, you know, the my crew's helping me for free. All my friends were helping me, but uh-huh. you still needed to buy the film. You still needed to get cameras. You still, you know, and you, so the credit card, okay, let's, you know, spend up 5,000. All of a sudden you're growing up and you refi on the house. Da, 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 da. All of a sudden you're doing that. Da, da, da. Uh-oh, now you're really in trouble. And after 12 years, you know, all that debt, but nothing to show for it. So we had to make the film. Um, got help from mom, you know, and we basically cut it, got Claire Scanlon, who was a fabulous director now, who was editing at the time, mm-hmm. and she worked on The Office, and we basically cut the film, got it into festivals. Again, no one helps. You know, we got 110 songs in there that have wow. to be licensed. Wow. So we're in festivals, but no one's going to, you know, you still have to pay if you're going to release it. So... Wait, you can send it to a festival without you can pay you pay a festival right, which is like you know, it's a hundred dollars. Oh, you know, still a lot of money. Yeah, you you end them all up, sure. Two hundred something, you know, times. Um, so I did that, and then two thousand eight hit. That's when it came out in in festivals, and economy went to shit, and no one wanted to talk to me. No one wanted to talk about documentaries. And then the idea of music doc was even a bigger kiss of death. Oh, so God. we kept going. And then 2010, I said, I can't give up because the reviews and the award, I had awards and reviews and sold out crowds. I wasn't worried about the film. And I'm not saying it's because it's my film. I just knew as a product, it was succeeding. And I just, if I did, if I quit, it's over. All I got is a trophy, but I got a lot of debt. So now I have to roll the dice back to dad. Just gambling. You know, I was gambling. 
basically keep going, keep going. But I came up with ideas of how to raise money. And one of them was, and I tried to get the music industry to help us. They, uh, you know, like the Fenders and the, you know, the, you know, Zildjian and, or uh, Ludwig's. And everybody would give me some product, but no one right. would give me any money. And right. I was trying to say, on the DVD, I said, you know, I was trying to be my sponsorships. Then someone said, I'll give you $1,000 to dedicate a song. I said, what are you talking about? He goes, you know how we put a brick in the building? He goes, at hospitals with names? I'll dedicate Up, Up, and Away because that got me into the radio business, that song. And I said, well, How are you that? doing the, how are you going to do the dedication? On the, on the website, the, on, on the, the DVD, on the credits, okay. on the okay. end of the credits. I just right, said, Dedicated right. by, you know, so and so. Now, on the actual DVD, people will write out their whole, you know, dedication of their loved ones. Wow. Um, and, and so I came up with these ideas, and all some money starts flowing in. So when the money starts coming in, I pay off a publisher, I pay off a label, I pay off and I keep Wait, going. so you're literally oh. making money to finish the film by people dedicating songs within the film to loved ones. Not just now, I not just then. I just do other things. I go from zero to uh what, what one dollar to ninety-nine dollars. If you donate, you're a groupie. If you go a hundred dollars to three hundred dollars, you're a roadie. And I kept coming up with levels. And so then I would go basically around the country, people would invite me. Would you show the film? I said, okay, if I show it, I have to come out. I have to, uh, and I would find sponsors. I would find like-minded sponsors, people that were, you know, uh, retirement lawyers, you know. I would put their name up on the screen with a montage of stills and music before the film started. Wow. And I, would give, and I would give them 10 tickets. They'd give me a couple hundred bucks. So that started paying for my travel any extra money, it goes right back to the paying off that. I learned, I learned about never paid for a hotel room, never paid for- um, How did you never, so how did you never pay for a hotel room? I gave, gave them, gave them tickets. I need three days. I need, you know, or two days, whatever it was. I need two days for a room. Here's 10 tickets. I don't care. I want them to give those tickets away, right. but their name is up on my website forever. Name is, you know, it's there forever. Did you study marketing at all? Was this all instinctual? No, or? no, it was all going along as I went along. And I just funny because I love at that point, I was having so much fun when you it was I'm still trying to sell a film, but I'm nailing like, oh, my God, my favorite was um, certain songs. Yes. Be my baby or, you know, all those songs go instantly people. Right. Mm -hmm. And then there's songs like um, everybody loves a clown. Who's going to get dedicate that one. And I'm thinking clown school, clown school. So I call oh. a clown school, the ah. LA clown school. And I give the guy my pitch and he goes, I'm in. <laughs> he said, he gives me the money. And wow. I loved it because it was so much fun because it's really it's just fun to do that. I love marketing. Wow. Um, I, in a sense, I do market, you know, I produce stuff, but I always tell everybody, I, if I tell my kids or any kids, you're always marketing. You're marketing yourself. You're always trying to sell yourself. Whatever we're doing, we're selling. And I learned a lot from that. I came up with food. Give me a hundred dollar gift certificate. You know, their name's up. They get 10 tickets, five tickets. Didn't matter. It was saving us money and putting it back into the screen, not on the screen to get the money paid off. And then the last thing we did was Kickstarter, and that was to pay off the musicians union. 
because they had basically, you know, all those musicians and contracts, and I wanted to make sure that they get paid mm -hmm. as a reuse. So we had to come up with 200,000 for the reuse. And that's what wow. we did. And we did a Kickstarter and that's, we pulled it off. Those are a lot of work, aren't they? Doing those oh, Kickstarter yeah. campaigns. I just did, it's funny, I just did it. That's why I'm wearing this, the Hanging with Dr. Z. That's tell my, us about Hanging yeah, with Dr. Z. Well, Hanging with Dr. Z is my latest project is Dana Gould is one of the great comedians I worked with many years ago. Mm -hmm. And um, he with Rob Cohen and Peter Harrison there, Rob's a director and Peter's a EP. They, Dana is uh, Dr. Zayas freak from Planet of the Apes. So he gets into the whole makeup and everything. And we basically do, he does during COVID, this is a way to keep going interview other comedians as if it was like the Merv Griffin show meets um, Fernwood Tonight. Oh, Fernwood Tonight's my favorite show of all time. So yes. Well, that's another thing we'll talk about. So then, so basically we interviewed like Pat Oswell, uh, Bobcat, uh, Goldthwait, and, um, and just uh, Hank Azaria and um, so many. So we just, the second time we did it, we did a uh, Kickstarter and I came up with the idea of Scrubs. And it's like so there because it's doctor and that's the only time i could ever put dr Jadesco. So, <laughs> yes yeah, uh, i'm very proud of about, it somebody asked about dr Tedesco. um whoa yes I, I i like to call it, i'm i'm considering myself a first responder uh tony but said what's know. behind dr Tedesco in the scrubs well you just answered there that question go. there you go tony so tony's the one who made that composite of all your photos which oh I that's funny thanks tony thanks for noticing by the way <laughs> that's right thanks she's uh so okay so sorry no don't Close don't that. no don't be sorry I, I i love the scrubs by the way they're pretty fabulous so okay so that's not your late well it is your latest project but it's, you've, so you've the got immediate a, family is the one that's yes that's the one all right wait before that, we get off this before yeah. we get off the wrecking crew yeah did you end up i assume you ended up getting all your money back having success with it i did go, well i did do the we yes well yes and no okay we did unfortunately which is a good thing and a bad thing we did go bankrupt oh you know i realize you know i had good credit you know why because all those people that helped me like wells fargo and citibank and american they're good people they all helped me <laughs> i kept paying them but what i'm saying is i didn't realize how bad i was until you know realize so the banks you know i try to get you know i just try to keep going and paying them for years kept paying them and really my accountant said you can't do that you'll never you'll never survive so that was the way to do it and i came out of bankruptcy so i'm very proud Danny, of I'm I, while you tell this story i gotta go get a battery so i'm putting you in the in the spotlight okay. go what am i talking to anybody no i'm still listening to you i can hear oh, you i got you you're just charging your battery. Yeah, so that was basically, um, yes, I ended up, yes, we did okay with it in the end. We ended up uh, getting our money back or some of our money back. But, you know, in the sense that it succeeded beyond it's everybody's beliefs or, you know, thoughts or um, I think the greatest compliment I got was when one of the publicists at Magnolia said, I said, how's it going? You know, when they were trying to do the first press, the first, you know, weeks out. And she goes, I've never, in 30 years, I've never had it so easy. And she goes, wow. and, 
and she says because you know everybody's been waiting for this and in a sense we laid the groundwork for so long you know musicians taught me about if anything the musicians taught me about like you know hey you're gonna sell merch you're gonna do this do a 20 instead of 15 so it's one bill da, 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 da. um you know get emails you know that's the other thing i learned so every time i would give away a gift or something you know a cd or a hat i'd say you know give me your email address we'll have a raffle at the end and that's what we do so when wow. we did do the kickstarter i had twenty thousand emails at least to help us you know facebook wow. you know we kept trivia and kept it going wow and, uh, that worked so a lot of personal uh sacrifice uh but you know, but you know, it goes back to what we were talking about. How my father, watching my father, and all these musicians, mm -hmm. all the musicians that have ever made it, every one of them that you know, no one, as my father said, you don't get lucky in music. You get lucky in golf. You have to practice. Do you know what I mean? You have to. You have to master your your instrument. You have right. to work at these things. If you have talent, that's great. But you really have to, and so I never got to that point of mastering anything. So in a sense, over those 10 years of trying to get the film out there, it ended up being 19, but I never gave up and I kept going. You know, should I have given up? Some people would have said yes. Mm. And I'm sure my family and friends, you know, we all have people, you know, writing a novel or that script or how's it going? It's like that Brian, you know, from... Uh, Family Guy, how's the novel going? There you go, don't jump. But you know what I mean? It's like, we, some people don't believe you. They just think you're, you know, are we just bullshitting ourselves? You know, no, I knew where I was heading. No one right. else saw where I was heading. Right. You know, I, I don't blame anybody. I mean. I assume you have no regrets, Denny. No, well, <laughs> yeah, there's regrets, but I, would I have done things differently? A couple things. I think I was too scared to move forward. I should, you know, where it was like. How so? Like Brian Wilson or trying to get certain interviews. Instead of me trying to push, push, push. Yeah. I was uh, kind of like trying to beat around the bush or trying to never, never really get in there. And I wasn't ready, wasn't ready, wasn't ready. And uh -huh. I should have just gone for it. Because if they say no, so what? You ask yeah. them again later. You know what I mean? I never thought about that. You know, um, that's the only thing. I would just, you know, I never gave up though. So no kidding, and and you turned out quite a product. Okay, so so were you as aware of the section as you were? Did you know about the sec? I mean, you had to have known about the section. Well, I knew about the guys. I knew right. the names for years. Right. You know, it's, and so it, it's funny because. When I'm like I said, when I'm growing up in the 70s, right. my older brother actually was a publisher and he worked at Warner Brothers and MCA and um, ABC for a while uh -huh. in the publishing. So he used to bring albums home all the time. So all of those albums, like the Randy Newman albums and the Crosby, Stills, Nash and all those albums and mm -hmm. um, James Taylor, we had all those albums. He's 10 years older than me. So I'm reading those credits. You right. know, I'm seeing these names you know, not knowing, you know, that one day I would actually meet them, but I knew that I knew them as legends, you know, and it's so funny. The funny thing was, was when 
so the guys, the producers, Greg, Jack, and Jonathan came to me and said, would you be interested in doing this, this film on the section? And, and I said, well, let me, let me, it was a quick thought. And I said, let's talk about it. And it was basically, they have a band called Immediate Family, which we know, and it's Wadi, Wachtel, and Leland, Escalar, Rush Kunkel, Danny Kochmar, and Steve Postel, who's the kid at 64. Or I think, you know, the I've known up. Steve Postel for 35 years. Yeah. yeah he's a baby. <laughs> yeah. So, um, <laughs> it's so funny. It's like, I think he, he unfortunately gets the brunt of everything on that band. I think he, yeah. But so I thought, well, you know, this kind of makes sense because at the end of the Wrecking Crew documentary, right. Lou, uh, Lou Adler says, hey, time's changed. You know, he goes, when I did Tapestry, he goes, Carol King brought in James Taylor and Danny Gochmar. So I was like, oh my God, all right, now it's, it does make sense. It's the jumping off point. Right. Because there's a jumping, we could have done, every one of these session players in this town could have a doc on them. I mean, you get the Bacaros, you got, you know, Abel Boreal and his son, and there's so many people. Right. Um, so, but this, I could grasp this because, all right, they're family. And the difference between these guys and my dad and his friends, dad, those guys never left town. You never, you didn't leave town because if you left town in, in, in the 60s, it means you had to leave town because you needed the work, baby, or they were paying you a lot of money. Right. Glenn Campbell, when he went on the, took over for Brian Wilson for the Beach Boys in the mid 60s, whatever it was, he must have been making a lot of money to do that. Right. Um, so you didn't do that. And the other thing is um, the sessions were three hours when my dad worked. Now sessions are, they're spending All right, you were going to explain this, yeah. yeah. So Wait, so Earl now Palmer, the sessions are what? Well, a great example, Earl Palmer said it. He goes, you know, the great drummer. Mm -hmm. um, he said in the seventies, they weren't record dates anymore. They were record projects, which meant you took days or weeks on it. So you'd be mm -hmm. constantly come back and do these songs over and over again. Right. And, you know, and then I interviewed Peter Asher and I, he, I said something about Peter. I said, um, about these guys, I said, you know, they're legends, you know, in my head, they're all legends. He goes, but they weren't legends at the time. They were mm -hmm. just people we knew. And I realized, I mean, look at Russ Kunkel. His first three albums were Blue, Sweet Baby James, and Tapestry. Unbelievable. I mean, you quit there and be a historic figure in music. Unbelievable. You know, so, you know, so that's the difference. Times change, music's changing. Um, Russ will be with us in two weeks, by the way, everybody. Oh, he's so great. You know, and it's funny, these guys have such a great reputation. That's the other thing. Um, I love musicians. Mm -hmm. I love, it's a love-hate relationship as well. And I say that proudly. How so? Um, what do you hate? Oh, come on. They can be the biggest pain in the asses <laughs> in the world. I grew up with one. I loved him. Oh. But, um, but you know, um, no, I mean, I just have such respect for them because it, you don't, I'm not talking about just professionals, any musician, anybody out there playing a guitar right now, you know, I have mm -hmm. respect for you. I didn't get there. 
Do you know what I mean? I might and not do like any none of your siblings play either? No, my my younger brother is a sound engineer. And he's like the engineer and mixer for a family guy and American Dad wow. and Animaniacs. So he does all the orchestras and all that. Wow. But he played sax and I, yeah, I played sax briefly in, in high school. Um, I got out of typing class. <laughs> and said to the priest, I said, I want to learn an instrument. Can I be in the band? And it was like, after having your knuckles beat up because you looked at the keys, I said, I don't want to do this anymore. <laughs> so I joined the band. But in the end, I became the banner carrier. I didn't even get to play with sax section. So <laughs> um, another check off my list. So, so, okay. So they came to you, they said, would you be interested in making? Right. So I said, you know, and I like the idea of the fact that now we have a spin on it. These guys have been friends for over 50 years. Did you know any of them? No, I, I knew Leland, mm -hmm. you know, because Leland is probably the sweetest and most supportive person I know in life. I Honestly, right, when we were doing things with the wrecking crew, he would just show up and give his support. Aww. And I remember he was there for the hands and cement at the um, uh, guitar center, all these people and Leland's there. I remember finding him standing in line, like 50 people back at a book sign or a DVD signing at Amoeba. I went, Aww. oh, Lee, come here, <laughs> please get out of line. You know, he's that guy. He, and, well, we met and then he came to my living room just to watch other people play. He was scheduled to play when everything ended. Right. Yeah, but anyway, yes, he's wonderful. And, you know, and the reputations, these guys, when you start talking to these artists, oh my God, that's why, you know, hey, it's not because Denny Tedesco is going to do the interview with Carol King. She could give, you know, care less or Linda Russ or whatever. But when it was about, hey, they want to do an interview about these guys, instant. Wow. Instant, so fast. Okay, so let's I mean, talk about some of those interviews because, oh my God, you yeah. interviewed... James Taylor, Carol King, Linda Ronstadt. Yeah. What what was that like for was, you as a filmmaker? Well, be, the hardest because Carol King's my first interview, and when Greg and the and, and Jack and they said, "Hey, we got," Annie said Carol's interested, but she's in town in three weeks. I'm like, "Oh my God, we don't even have a premise of this film yet." I really didn't. I mean, I had a spin on it, but you know, right. it takes a while. But so I started doing my, you know, reading my books and this and that and having a and I was really, you know, and I did it. And then, then we went to, uh, I think the next one was James and then Linda and went and Linda's doc just came out oh. and she was so sweet. I mean, God, she was just, and she reminded me of my mom oh. in a lot of ways because she had Parkinson's. Mm -hmm. And so I could see the shuffle and, you know, I see that in the family and, but so sweet. And, um, and James, so sweet and uh, Jackson, you know, um, they couldn't say enough about these guys. Well, of course, they have to love them. They're the backbone of all their Yeah, music. I mean, again, it's that musicians respect each other. You know, good musicians always mm -hmm. respect each other. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And, you know, you might not like someone personally, but, you you know, my greatest compliment, I could hear my father say, um, he'd be listening to the radio or, or come home and say, man, I just heard this so-and-so. What? He's a 
son of a bitch, he's a motherfucker. You know, he, but it was the greatest, excuse my language. I didn't realize yeah, exactly. I swear on this. Oh, you Sorry. can totally swear on, fuck yes, you can swear. Okay, yes. good. But he, it was the greatest compliment. He's a bitch. That means, oh my God, he's playing or wow. she's playing. You know, and that used to get him excited. I mean, you know, speaking of she's a bitch, was there, I mean, Carol was at a very unusual. Very. Okay, so <laughs> how. Wait, I, first of all, hold on. Everybody, uh, you, Vicky just made the segue. I did not make that segue. <laughs> So I'm, I'm just I'm, saying. I'm, I'm just AD, saying. I'm as ADD as you are. So uh, let's Carol just Kay, go back, rewind. All right, Carol Kay, unbelievable that this woman yes. is a part of this. Huge. This. So how how did the guys in the in, in the Wrecking Crew accept Carol? They accepted her as a guitar player, mm -hmm. as a musician. Mm -hmm. Now they treated her like shit, like everybody did. Do you know what I mean? I know she. She said things like, oh, my God, you know, my father said that to you. I don't question it. They get in arguments. They're calling each other bad names. Right. But they're calling each other bad names. One on one. You know I mean, it's not one on one. You know what I'm saying? It's you could call someone something or call each other out. Everybody's but their respect for each other as musicians first. Mm -hmm. And your friend, you deal with your other bullshit, whatever. But they went to work and they dealt with their stuff. Um, Carol was a fabulous guitar player, um, but you know, she was, you know, there was a lot of guitar players, you know, in the second, you had Bill Pittman, you had dad, you had Glenn Campbell, you had Billy Strange, you had Howard Roberts, you had Barney Castle. right there you got six, seven, right. you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And then you got Carol. Um, so Carol was lucky enough to accidentally get on bass. And she took over because Ray Pullman, the great bass player at the time, Fender bass player, he started doing shindig. So he goes to shindig. So now there's a bunch of openings open. So she just takes over and can play the hell out of the bass. And that's what she does. Um, so her, as a relationship, they, they, I'm sure they tortured her. She tortured them back. Mm -hmm. You know, it's, it's, you know, I've seen it, you know, um, I see what they do to each other, mm -hmm. but, you know, there's no doubt they have respect for her. You know, you did, this is the one thing I, I always say this because Glenn Campbell said something. He said, you know, don't forget that's in the early days, they're doing those specter dates and all these other dates. There's it's mono. There's only one track. There's no multi-tracking. Right. So you get everybody coming into the board. Nobody better make a mistake because we only have three hours. We have to get three songs, four songs done. You make a mistake. We don't take the computer and punch in at bar 32. Right. Either cut tape, which they don't want to do the cut, you know, cutting tape. So they go back. Let's do it again. Do it again. And so anybody in that room, he said, was a Michael Jordan. He says, but everybody was a Michael Jordan. So I give what I do give all of them a lot of credit for in regards to Carol. Mm -hmm. Carol's not there because she's a woman or someone's girlfriend. It's far from it. She's there as a, a musician. Mm -hmm. Do you know what I mean? And that's mm -hmm. the ultimate respect because that's why she's there. Mm -hmm. You know, she wasn't a hire or a friend. Right, she's a right. baseball. Mm -hmm. She's if you're 
if your bass and your drums are gone or not, they're not connecting, you're dead. You know, so they, they're locked, those two are locking in and everybody's following suit, you know? So I gave Carol all the credit in the world for that. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, I mean, yeah, she's a pioneer, a, absolutely a pioneer. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Phil Sloan was a friend of mine and mm. did my living room one of his last things, you know, and a lot of people don't realize that his voice is the voice we're hearing when we think we're hearing other people. Yeah. Yeah. That was just part of the deal. I mean, it was a product, you know, people always think, in, you know, it was a product. You know, you go to work, you're still making a product. You know, that was my father's my father's philosophy. I go to work, I play for smiles, as I said. Now, if he said, I might not think it's the right thing to play, but you know what? I'm not paying the check. That person is writing me a check. He wants me to play like that. I'll play like that. And so whether it's dumbed down or it's not the best, you still have to, you have to deliver. You know, and Danny and Danny Kirchmar and I talked about this in a lot of ways. There's a difference between Danny, and my dad. How so? Danny, well, Danny couldn't do that. I don't think in terms of, I don't want to say sell out. I mean, they all have. I don't want to say sell, selling out doesn't mean to say you do those gigs. You you know, you're nine to five, not the nine to fives. You're, you know, you're nine to 12, da, 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 da. My dad didn't give a shit. I'm sure he, there was, he didn't. His he ego to, wasn't in that mix. No, mm -hmm. you know, and, it, and probably because he did, you know, yes, he cared about the music. He cared about making the job right. Mm -hmm. Now, he goes, there's the music and there's the music business. He goes, sometimes they connect. But you always have two when mm -hmm. he's doing that. And so you want to make music. And you want to do it exactly you that's your choice of your album or whatever you want to do right you know i just think and that's the same thing for me i still have to answer to people when i'm producing for jobs or directing i still they don't like it i got to change it right so so denny what's the trajectory for because we're still kind of in a oh, frozen in, we're, i'm frozen am i frozen there? Yeah, I'm still here. I see you. Uh -oh. you're, you're, you're in real there? time. There, there you are. are. Um, what's the trajectory for the immediate family film? Because uh, we're kind of still so in the pandemic. Right now, so basically, now we're in the post. We're doing our second run, the third run through, cut-wise. Mm -hmm. It's getting better every time. Um, I'm hoping we'll be done cutting by the end of the year. And then we'll see what happens. I mean, I'm excited about this. It's, you know... I, it's first time through very nerve-wracking seeing a cut yeah. never going to happen never going to work da, 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 da. and then you start peeling away and start getting there you go oh i like this i'm starting to like a film you know hated always hate at the beginning and then it's like then you start getting there and you go i like it and then it goes away again and go back again i'm sure that's what musicians must feel like sometimes when they put an album out i don't know um I'm just, you know, I just think it's the right time again. Music docs or thank God are living. And, and are um, you, is it, is there any, is the pandemic messing with things still? No, no, not, not so really. much. Mm -hmm. Not so much now. I mean, yeah, there was things, like I said, yeah, I would have loved to have gotten 
you know, Neil Young in person. Right. But you know what? It's Neil Young. And like I said, it's the message. The biggest but I mean, as far as putting it out and marketing it. No, and no, 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 no. You know, distributors are still, you know, we still have to get the sales team involved and distributors are coming in. Um, so it's really Are you going to do big, the festivals again? Maybe, I guess so. You know, it's, I hope so. I love that. Honestly, I really do love festivals. Um, I love talking to people, you know, and I, that's the thing is what it. I did is when I went to festivals, I would have fun. Um, I was right. like the only guy that you would, I'd be giving tickets at the festival. Hey, come on. Hey, you know, I don't care. I just want to have fun with people. And I met a lot of wonderful people over all those years. And some became really good friends, you know, still. And all over the world, this music is, you know, this music and the immediate family music, it's all over the world. Mm-hmm. So, you know, and the humor's there. Is so. there some, and so you, you do both, you do comedy and music. Is there more Dr. Z? Yeah, there is more Dr. Z. Hanging with drz.com. We just did the second season. Uh, we're just cutting it now. Um, again, it's, it's, we did Penn, Gillette, and uh, I mean, we did Weird Al Yankovic. I mean, it's just wacky. You know what you're talking about? Um, um, Fernwood Tonight. Right, right. You know, my dad was happy in the Happy Kind band. Oh, stop. Yeah, oh, God. Disco yeah. Duck. So I he, mean, was, that, he was Tommy Marinucci. Oh he was the guitar God. player. Oh my God! And, no, I, uh, Norman Lear. I, when I met Norman, I, I immediately oh. said, "Mary Hartman from tonight." I mean, everyone says all in the family. No, that was and and Fred Willard was a friend of mine, and Gary uh, Hubbard was like the most brilliant character like ever. And oh my yeah. God! So when I was in high school, I would go see those. I would see the tapings. Oh and, my God. And what they would do is at the beginning, you know, at the beginning of the show, there's just a, like three rows of old people, <laughs> right? And then what they would do is basically get a bus, like, a you know, one of those bus tours, free show, blah, 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 bring them in, drop the curtain, oh film God. the opening, and then the curtain would go up and it'd be whoever else was in the audience. Right. So when my father got the call to do that job, they said, you know, why don't you come in for an audition? He goes, no, I'm not going to do an audition. Now, anybody that doesn't know who my father looks like, my father was 250 pounds at the time. He was probably, yeah, 250 pounds. And, you know, he goes, I'm not going in. He goes, every time you want an audition, you look for a young 24-year-old kid with curly hair. And he's basically talking about Lee Rittenhauer at the time. <laughs> he goes, I'm not going in. And they said, no, 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 we're looking for a guy that looks like he's a truck driver from Cleveland. He goes, I'll be right down. <laughs> so he went right into the audition because that's what he looked like. Wow. And so now he gets, you know, gets the gig. It's Frank Duvall, who's one of the greatest composers of the time. Oh, my God. Time. Funniest guy. You oh, had so funny. Frank Morocco, the great, one of the greatest accordion players. And you had the other guys in the band, the Fort Quartet. And Martin plays guitar. So now my father's in heaven. And now, and the thing was in the first day, the fire marshal comes to him because my father, remember we talked about addictions, his addiction was cigarettes. And he could not, he would not take a job if he couldn't smoke. And they said, you can't smoke on stage. And, you know, because it's a 
working set. He goes, uh, I'll, get, right, I'll get through this. To, no, Stace, didn't like Johnny Carson smoke on camera? Right. But what they so what they did was Norman said, you know what? It's a prop. So that's probably nice. what, that's how they got around it. Right. So now you watch, if you look at any of those old episodes, you'll see dad smoking a cigarette and just blazing on his guitar. And that was, they had fun and they get to act, you know. And oh Fred, God, yeah. Fred uh, was hilarious. Fred was and hilarious. Mark. And in fact, my, my life coach was a writer on that show, uh, Jeremy Stevens. And uh, what a, it was brilliant. It was so ahead of its time. Um, uh, I, I didn't realize that your father was in that band. I have to go back and, and look at some of those. That's yeah, I'll, wow. I'll send you a clip. Oh, I would love that. I would love that. And it's seeing him act how I would. <laughs> well, he, play, I mean, he basically plays an ex-con coming out of prison, <laughs> you know, and that's what he is uh, basically, you know, Italian. It's so funny because remember a family member, you know, uh, a friend or family member, an older person was really upset with him because, you know, he's playing a, you know, like a mafiosa, you know, you know, my father was very <laughs> proud of his heritage. He didn't care, uh, you know. Yeah. Yeah, oh my so. god that's so fabulous I'm, I'm looking at a question tony's asking is the immediate family film going to have a theatrical release first are you up so. to, are you, up I, you to know, that? That, totally but you know we don't know what the world is at this point if you mm -hmm. said that six months ago a year ago no i don't think so yeah but you know and now we're going back right i mean when when um do you make a streaming deal out. first like had it no, well, last time it was how it happened. Last time was when I went looking for help. I remember um, this one gentleman said, "Hey, you haven't gone to the majors." He goes, "I can't give you anything." He says, "I love your film, but you should go back to the majors before." Meaning, like some of the other bigger companies. And I right. went to like, "No." He goes, "Because everybody thought I went, came and went in 2008. No one realized I never paid it off." So once they saw it and they released it and they put it in, they said, we'll check, we'll do maybe one or two, we'll do two theaters, one in LA, one in New York, da, da, da. And we ended up being over a hundred theaters, wow. you know, because it, these films do have a big, when you see your film with a, a group of people, it's a big difference because yeah. you, it's a, it's, you know, you hear the yes. music together and you're laughing together. Of course. And I loved watching those. I loved watching the screens. My mom went to so many screenings. God bless her. You know, I said, Mom, you've seen it so many times. She goes, I know. I said, Don't you want to hang out here? No, I want to be inside. Okay. You know, she's oh. like 80, you know, 80 years old, you know, going, and she was just so proud and she'd be crying in the end, oh. you know, every time. So it was sweet. That's so, lovely. So, Denny, is yeah. there something else that, like, do you think you'll do? Because now you're going to get the call. Who are you going to call? You're going to call Denny Tedesco when you want a music really? talk made. Yeah. Is that, is that what, yeah? Okay. That's what's going to happen. I do, but, I, I do have another call. I do not another one. I do have one in the works. Ah. Um, it's it's, it's a, totally different. And it's about in 1963 when mm -hmm. Kennedy gets killed. The day, the day before, it was the Friday, whatever, the market goes crashing. And the, you know, the stock market crashed. Everybody assumes it's because of that. It wasn't. What happened was there's a guy, this Italian guy out of Jersey. His name was Tino DeAngelis. Everybody's Italian. Okay, yeah. Exactly. <laughs> Imagine he's five foot five, 250 pounds. Wow. The really bully guy. He was a hustler. And 
he had he was a butcher in the by trade in the early days and he was basically taking his uh, meat and selling it to the government for the school programs and he or the you know or the food for peace programs and he was making a lot of money but then he'd be sued because it was rancid meat or his rancid product i mean he was just cutting ways of making more money so I could see the lights going on me. I know, I um, was looking, I was, I was going to like, say oh my something. God, I feel like I'm yeah. in a dark room. As long as you stay close, we can see Is you it well. just you, me, and Tony right now? <laughs> <laughs> so, so, so this guy, Tony, the other Tony, D'Angelo, right. Tino D'Angelo, he starts figuring out salad oil. He starts bringing it from the Midwest, storing it in these huge tanks out in Jersey, in Bayo, New Jersey. And it's on this place where Amex, American Express, would basically store this stuff and give you credit to show that you had the, this product. And what you would do with that credit slip is go to the banks and borrow on it. All right, so this guy's got these tanks filled with oil. And they, mm -hmm. the guy come out, put the stick in, boom. Ooh, all right, he's got this much, this much, this much. What no one told these guys sometimes is it was oil on top of water. So when they put the stick in, it's only this much oil or whatever it is. Right. Another 30 feet is oil, uh, water. So he's borrowing on nothing. So wow. he sends these hustlers, all these guys in their Cadillacs are going boom, 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 boom. Million, two million. They're borrowing, borrowing. It's a Ponzi scheme. Paying, wow. paying, paying. It becomes, when it crashes, it becomes one of the biggest crashes in history. Even wow. to this day, it's bigger than like Enron. And so Warren Buffett, my friend Ron Insana, who is a journalist, a financial journalist, we went to grade school together. He told me the story. I said, I love this. So he is basically producing a feature on it. So the, the you know, with the license, they got the book and, and I interviewed the writer. I interviewed Warren Buffett. And wow. oh my God, it's a hustler. It's such a hustling this guy was such a scam artist. And then he goes to prison only for seven years and comes back out and does it again. <laughs> he had a mystery. He had a, he had a wife and a mistress and both of them are in court together. And when the writer said to his wife, you know, what was he like? He says, Oh, he was a good man. He was a good man. It's like, Oh my God, he got everybody bullshitted. Wow. But it's, it's a great story. So, I mean, we're just doing that now. So it's, it's a, different than music. Yeah. A little, yeah. A little bit different than music, a little bit different than the beloveds. And yet he was beloved. He kind of got away with stuff, right? Well, that's, you know, it's, it's a weird thing because he destroyed so many lives. It's, it's interesting because mm -hmm. there is always another, all of us, we, there's the, you know, there's an evil side or whatever not evil when I just think there's so much character in that guy and what makes him do that is what there a lot of footage of him no 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 so you how know, do you work I around used, that I don't know but I did I'll send you the uh, I'll send you the short that we cut you know the you know the trailer I used this is great you'll love this I used footage of my grandfather <laughs> it's perfect wow it's so perfect exactly what he looked like wow yeah wow so it, it was uh what was his name in the godfather castellano um 
oh god i can't remember his name he used to know him. he looked exactly like my my grandfather um that's what he, you know the role basically i think he played um oh god i forgot i just saw it the other night but no i just that's i love telling the stories i love meeting people so it sounds fantastic denny so yeah. okay so when immediate family when, when i say next i say by summer next year that's what i want because you still need good six months for a company to know it's coming out so by summer or end of summer next year that's my guess by that time i'll probably hopefully be going to movie theaters because <laughs> yeah. i have to see it in the theater that's a must yeah 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 um Danny, but you know i'm you hoping people go to the facebook page you know for the the tell us everything family. tell us everything we can do to help to to support yeah, you it's very, basically it's really going to the facebook page the immediate family film page you know of course the guys have their own page which is great right but we want to make sure that the film is known about so that we can spread the word because that is so helpful i know that from experience with the wrecking crew when the film finally comes out you already built your base right you know, on a story that no one knows about so, well, I'm going to put, you're going to send me the link. I'm going to yeah. put it in, in the liner notes for this show so that people can easily hit, hit on it and follow it. And is there anything else people can do to support you through this? Uh, Venmo. No. Venmo is good. <laughs> I take Zelle. <laughs> checks. I will take checks. <laughs> I've never used Bitcoin, but I'll take it. I'm not uh, sure what it looks like. I don't, I don't even know even, what it looks like. I don't even know what Bitcoin is. I've been trying to, I, I still either. don't understand no. Bitcoin, but I don't know. All the know, pornographers ask for it. You, <laughs> no, don't you ever, that. didn't you ever get one of those emails that says, I've attached a camera to your computer and I saw you were watching this porn site. And if you don't send me blah, 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 and Bitcoin, I'm going to send it to all your contacts. You've never gotten one of those? No, I don't do porn. <laughs> Uh, but it's ironic because like i don't watch porn but i get those emails and i just it, it, no i got I, no the hustles are really are scary you know they had my password he had my password he had my computer password wow. yeah really scary so i changed that right away but yeah really scary yes yeah, don't you that notice that you can be talking to someone on the phone and you'll mention something and then you go on your Facebook page and they're giving you ads for exactly what you were just talking about. Yeah, I mean, like all the time. Yesterday. It's Excuse unnerving. Me. Yeah, it's very unnerving. Uh, so. <laughs> uh, Danny, thank you so, I, I am so glad you were worth waiting for two years. So watch. Oh, I this thank is, you. I'm so glad we got to do this. Absolutely. And I will see you in, in a movie theater in person. I so. can, I look forward to the day and send me some, some firmware tonight stuff of your dad and whatever else you can think of. Have yeah, a wonderful, have, have a wonderful um, rest of your day and Halloween. And thank you so much for thank doing you. this. Bye. Take care. Ciao. Bye.